Well, good morning, church. I'm so excited to be bringing God's Word to you today. Uh, let me invite you to keep your Bibles open and refer to the bulletins, uh, the sermon outline in your bulletins. But how about we come to God in prayer right now? Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your Word. And so, Lord, right now we just pray that you, by your Spirit, will be here with us and that you might soften our hearts so that we may be ready to receive what you have to say today. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, one of the YouTube channels that I'm subscribed to is Smarter Every Day. Uh, anybody here follow that channel? Yes, so some, some fans here. Uh, it's an educational channel, and it's run by an engineer called Destin Sandlin. In one of his videos, he dedicates his experience in riding the backwards bike. Go watch it, it's fascinating. And essentially, a backwards bike is a bike that's engineered to turn in the opposite directions from the handlebars. Every time you turn the handles left, the tire goes right, and vice versa. And it almost sounds very easy to learn, but it isn't. It's actually surprisingly difficult. It's not as easy as you think. And in principle, I think we sort of all understand that. Right? It's not the same thing. Knowledge of something doesn't always mean knowing it. Another example is, I know many of you are currently on your L's. Like, if you know someone on their L's, point to them. <laughs> right? Go get your P's, hurry up. Uh, <laughs> but at some point you all had to complete the driver's knowledge test. And you know, like, you would have to have gotten 100% in that driver's knowledge test, but you know what? You and I know the first time you sat in that car, all that knowledge went out the window. Knowledge does not always mean understanding. Knowledge doesn't always mean knowing. You can understand, you can, you can have a knowledge and understanding of riding a bike, of driving, but you can't truly know it until you experience it, until you really get into it. And we see that in our chapter today. Knowledge of Jesus, is, or knowing about Jesus, doesn't really mean truly knowing Him. Knowledge of Jesus, or knowledge about Jesus, or even relation to Jesus Himself, doesn't mean truly knowing Him. And so what we see in our chapter today is that you could know Jesus but still be spiritually blind. We see that in all the stories. We have completely different people, all who are related, have some sort of knowledge of Jesus, who serve with Him, but they are all spiritually blinded to who He truly is. And so in all this, we see that hearts of many are so hardened and are so prone to spiritual blindness as God Himself walks among them before their very eyes. And what I want to suggest to you is that knowing Jesus means to have a knowledge and an understanding that penetrates your heart. And so the context is that Jesus is moving away from Capernaum. He's moving away from Capernaum and he's going to his hometown, Nazareth. He's going to Nazareth along with his disciples and we're not sure why, or we're not told why Jesus chose to go to Nazareth back right now but it's possibly because he wanted to spend time with his family. It's possible that he wants to minister to the people he loves right now. 
you know, it's, it's sort of the equivalent of people who live in the North Shore and they're venturing out all the way west to Rudy Hill. You see, Jesus, he is from Rudy Hill. And now, right now, he's going to go back to Nazareth, go back to the west, and he's going to minister to them. So three points for today. It's in your outlines. The dismissive skepticism by Jesus' hometown, the disregard shown by King Herod, and the disciples' spiritual blindness. Follow along with me. Let's have a look at the first point. The dismissive skepticism. And what you'll discover here is nothing new. Jesus does exactly what he's been doing this entire time. We've been seeing it. He's been teaching. He's been preaching. He's been doing miracles. And people were often powerfully struck by the things Jesus said and did. And this was the case in Nazareth. The people freely acknowledge what Jesus has done. Right? His teaching was amazing. Have a look at verse 2. Right? That he's, they're amazed. However, there is a unique element to their astonishment. There is a unique element to the astonishment of the people of Nazareth. They, they weren't amazed like, oh, wow, like, oh, I'm amazed. But they were like, oh, really? Is this what Jesus has become? You see, the people were surprised. It's sort of like one of those scam callers who call you and tell you that you've won a million dollars. And I'm like, oh, really? I can finally buy that Ferrari I always wanted. In fact, this is what's happening right here. Jesus is, uh, the people of Nazareth were extremely skeptical of Jesus, of what Jesus was doing, teaching like a rabbi, especially when he's not a rabbi, especially when the people he knew knew his background. They knew him growing up. He, they knew that he wasn't an expert in the scriptures. And so look at their response. Mark tells us that in their astonishment, <clears throat> they said to one another, have a look at verse 3 with me, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Their response is, so they were offended at him. So let's have a look at these questions because it's really interesting. Why do they ask this? Is this not a carpenter? And there's something really important to notice here. Why don't they, the people ask, is this not the son of carp, the carpenter, Joseph? Why do they identify Jesus with Mary? You know, the, the back, back in that, those days, the culture, it was the norm to identify someone with their father. They knew Jesus himself was a carpenter. And, and so, for example, Elijah, baby Elijah back there, is the son of Joseph. <laughs> Brendan is the son of Roger. And it's interesting. Why do they say it is not, it is the, not the carpenter of the son of Mary? Why, 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 is it, why do they ask that? And so that raises the question, why did they do this? Well, you could speculate. The reason for this is because they still believed that Jesus was an illegitimate son. That's what they, that's what they might have been thinking. That Mary had con- conceived him outside of marriage. Because we all know that she was a virgin. Jesus was a virgin birth. And I can imagine them saying, isn't he that carpenter, that son of Mary? Oh, we know that family. 
And so the people of Nazareth were offended. They were offended by Jesus. They were offended by what he was doing, what he was saying, what he was teaching. And quote unquote, what he was, or who he was. The people were offended about who he was. They were offended. And that's what the text says. And so the people of Nazareth, they rejected him. And this is his hometown. His hometown rejected him in disbelief. You know, maybe you don't really relate to what's happening here because this concept and this sort of community doesn't really happen anymore, right? Where your whole town knows you. And you know, I, I grew up in Bankstown and none of the Habibis there ever knew me by name, let alone what I did for work or the name of my mother or my father. But I imagine it's sort of like when I'm walking down Bankstown and I run into someone, I know you guys know what that's like, you run into someone, an old friend, right? And you do this thing where you catch up and you're like, how are you going? What are you doing with your life right now? And for me, you should see the look on these people's friends, oh, my friends' faces. You should see their faces because when I tell them I want to be a pastor of a church, you should see, it's, you see their faces because it's actually, it's hilarious, it's like right on their face, they're saying they cannot believe that that's what I want to do with my life. In fact, it almost seems like they cannot wait to say, how on earth did Tom, that guy, this guy, how did he end up being wanting to be a minister? And it's because it's these very, th- these very people who have known me and all the ungodly things that I was doing when I was growing up. And of course... Jesus never engaged in ungodliness. And, that's, and my point is that the people of Nazareth knew Jesus. They knew his background. They knew his family. They knew who he was. They, and it was enough to question his call and his teaching. And so in principle, I think we understand what's happening here. We can all empathize with Jesus. We can all empathize with Jesus because we all know what it feels like to be excluded from community. We all know what it feels like to be rejected from community. And that's exactly what is happening here with Jesus. Jesus was being rejected by his people. They were interrogating him. These people who have known him, they've known him for years. They knew who he was. They played with him when he was growing up. But what you see here when he comes back and visits is that they were skeptical of him. They were skeptical of his authority to teach, his authority to perform miracles, and perhaps even the legitimacy of his birth. You see, that's their response. That's why they are asking all these questions. And notice, even the neighbors and the family members who he has known his whole life, what do they do? They reject him. They dismiss him. They reject Jesus as his teachers. They, they ask a bunch of questions, and they dismiss Jesus. But look at, look at how Jesus responds in verse 4. Have a look with me. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Now what on earth does that mean? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? But let's reword it. So in other words, a prophet is with honor everywhere but his hometown, with everyone but his own relatives. Isn't that interesting? Well, I came across this saying which I think explains his response. 
And listen carefully. Familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. You see, this saying means that when you have extensive knowledge of someone, when you know someone, for some reason, it leads to a loss of respect for them. Put even more simply, the more you know someone, the, m- the more reasons to be skeptical of them. Familiarity breeds contempt. And I feel like that's what's happening here. In fact, that's what Jesus is feeling. Jesus says he is being disrespected by the buried people in his own town, even among his relatives in his home. You see that? That's what's happening. Jesus says that, and right now Jesus is feeling like a stranger. He's feeling like a stranger in his hometown, even in his home amongst his friends and his family. And that's an important point. He's feeling excluded. He's being dismissed. You see, Jesus, he has come, and he has come to preach and teach God's word. But the people of Nazareth, they were skeptical of the person who they once knew. They, were re- they really thought they knew Jesus, these people, right? The people of Nazareth, they really thought they knew him. But what we need to see is exactly what they were missing. And what they were missing was who Jesus truly was. Who Jesus truly was. And who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is God. Jesus is God among men. Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God's Son. And so the problem is that the people of Nazareth, they were spiritually blind. They did not see that. They could not understand that. They were spiritually blinded by their past history and knowledge of Him. And they were blinded by their skepticism of Him. Even though they were familiar with Jesus as he grew up, they failed to see Jesus for who he truly was. Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as God's Son. Jesus as God in the flesh. And the people of Nazareth, they were blinded, and in their dismissive skepticism, it actually led led them to ignore Jesus for who he truly was. And so notice what happens in verse 5. Jesus would not heal anybody, because of their spiritual blindness. And this sort of idea, this concept of spiritual blindness, it's nothing new to us, right? Over the last couple chapters, we have seen this in chapter 4, if you remember the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower where we see seeds that fall on different types of ground. The ground with no soil, the rocky ground, the thorny ground, all revealing some sort of spiritual blindness. All right, it's possible to know the good news, but to not really know. We remember that, right? And even last week, there's, this, there's actually this huge irony because last week Jesus had just left a woman so filled with faith that she simply was healed by touching his cloak. Do you guys remember that? Some random woman touches his clothes, she believes, and she is healed. And we see right now it's actually contrasted with the people who know him the best. Who know him the best but have so little faith. These people who are spiritually blind. On one hand, we see the daughter who touches Jesus' clothes and believes. But in sharp contrast, the people from his very hometown, even his family, are spiritually blind to who he is. And, and I want to suggest to you that knowledge of Jesus doesn't always mean truly knowing Him. 
knowledge of Jesus doesn't always mean truly knowing him. The people of Nazareth were blinded by the dismissive skepticism and it led them to ignore Jesus for who he truly was. And so that's our first point. That's what we see in our first point, the dismissive skepticism. But come with me to the next point, the disregard shown by King Herod. And it is in this point we see how King Herod hears all about Jesus and how he responds. Have a look at verse 12 with me. They, being the disciples, went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. So the context is that from verses 6 to 13, Jesus sends the disciples on a little mission trip. It's like a mini mission trip. He sends them off to preach and teach and heal in the villages around Nazareth. Right? And Jesus turns, them, turns to them, he commissions them, and he tells them, you guys are going to do exactly what I've been doing right now. And we even see in verse 7, he gives them the authority to heal. To, he gives them authority over impure spirits. You know, anyone who has ever delegated an important task to someone who may not just be ready understands what is happening right here. You see, it's one thing for God, who's Jesus, right, who's Jesus, to go around preaching and healing and casting out demons. But now Jesus is going to entrust this job to these buffoons, these nobodies who have, who he's just met, it's kind of like if I asked some random on the street to be my wife. And, and I totally feel that because I'm, I'm not going to do that, right? <laughs> but Jesus is entrusting a job that's so important to his disciples, right? To his disciples who don't even get it. They don't even know who Jesus truly is yet. They're still confused. But yet, that's exactly what Jesus does in the passage. He sends the disciples out. He entrusts them to do the work of preaching, teaching, and performing miracles. And you know what? They did a good job. It was an exceptional job because King Herod actually hears about it. The king, he hears about Jesus and what his disciples have been doing. Or at least some guy who has been performing miracles. We see that in verse 14, because of the disciples' work, Jesus' name had become so well known. And right now we see King Herod's response. We actually see what King Herod is going to say. He's, like, he's actually trying to figure out what on earth is going on with this Jesus guy. This guy who is performing all these miracles, who's doing all these things in my land. And so, you know, recently, uh, a lot of ACG people have been getting into relationships. And so, naturally, there's been a lot of gossip going around. And I'm not looking at anyone in particular. And mind you, this type of gossip is a good type of gossip because it's just people becoming official, and that's important to know. But I remember there was this one particular week where I heard about three different couples becoming official. And I was like thinking to myself, man, word really gets around, doesn't it? And so just think of this. Think of this, but on steroids. And it's about a guy 
who's healing and casting out demons and raising dead people from death to life and teaching the word of God. Because King Herod heard all the hot goss in Nazareth. King Herod heard all the hot goss in Nazareth and he's wondering what's going on with this Jesus guy. And, And what's the first thing we often do when we hear gossip? Well, we research. We go on someone's Facebook profile and stalk them. We do research and we want to know more, right? And so that's what happens here. Let's imagine for, and get in the mind of King Herod. And you see King Herod, he's first of all, oh man, this Jesus guy, he must be John the Baptist. John the Baptist, yes, that's it. He's come from the dead. It must be him. Have a look at verse 16. But when Herod heard this, he said, John the Baptist, John who I have beheaded, has been raised from the dead. You see, he does, he actually does his research in verse 14 onwards. He heard what other people have said. Some said it was John the Baptist, others reported it was Elijah, and still others said it was, it must be a prophet. It's one of those prophets from a long, long time ago. And so after the research, Herod concludes it must be John the Baptist. It's pretty clear to him. And so from verse 17 onwards, we see this recount of how John the Baptist was martyred. We see a recount of how John the Baptist died. And you can read this in your own time, but in summary, John the Baptist calls out King Herod for his adulterous marriage. John the Baptist calls King Herod out for his marriage because King Herod had married his brother's wife. Think about it. It's actually a bit, a bit weird. But look at what, what's his response. And so there's like this sort of this conflict going on, right? There's this conflict between King Herod and his wife and John. And King, King Herod's wife actually hates this. And eventually they, uh, they get him killed. And so when King Herod heard about what Jesus was doing... He disregarded it. He disregarded because he thought it was John the Baptist. And so guys, what we see in this story is that you can do all the research, you can hear all the right goss, but you can still get it wrong. Guys, what you need to see is that knowledge about Jesus is not truly knowing him. Knowledge about Jesus isn't truly knowing him. We see that we see that King King Herod in his sin he kills John and he completely misses the point. He completely disregards Jesus. And so that's what we see in the first two points. You can live with someone and not know a single thing about them. You can hear a whole bunch of goss about someone and still not know a single thing about them. And so in point three we will see that you can work and serve with someone and still not know anything about them. Let's move on to our last point, the disciples' spiritual blindness. And so we're picking back up right after the disciples' mission trip, right after King Herod hears about it. And we've come to the feeding of the 5,000. It's really famous, like a famous passage in the Bible. We all know it. And what's interesting here is that the feeding of the 5,000 is here by no accident. Mark follows the account of Herod's banquet 
actually with a banquet of a different sort. It's actually Jesus' banquet. And here we see that it's actually contrasted against Herod's banquet. Jesus' banquet is not celebrating himself, not boasting about his status, but rather it's ministering to the people's needs. And so in our story, it picks up after the mission trip and the 12 disciples are exhausted. They're hungry, but they're filled with stories of successful ministry. You know, they, they, they just did a lot of good ministry and so they're just trying to find a place of rest. So what, what happens? They bought a boat and they arrive to the next village. But what happens when they arrive? We see that in verse 34 that there is a crowd already waiting for them. Have a look at verse 34. There's a crowd there. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he beg, began teaching them many things. You see, notice that Jesus, in his compassion, his instant response is to teach. He knows that that's what they want and that's what they need. He spiritually feeds the sheep. He teaches them. The people were hungry to hear. They were hungry to feast. And so what does Jesus do? We see here he holds a banquet. He holds a spiritual banquet. The people here were hungry and Jesus gave them exactly what they wanted. In fact, he gave them everything and more than what they wanted. They gave, he gave them what they needed. He, he gave them the very word of God. And that's important to Jesus. And so shortly after, we get the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And you know the people are hungry, the disciples are hungry, and maybe even Jesus was physically hungry. But what's important right now is, I want you to notice that it is actually a contrast between physical hunger and spiritual hunger. There's a contrast between physical hunger and spiritual hunger. First in the people, but also between the disciples and their blindness in their physical hunger and knowledge of the people. And we see that the disciples are contrasted to, the, to Jesus, to Jesus and his acute awareness of the people's need of spiritual feasting. Do you see that? You see, the disciples suggest to dismiss the crowd to find food, right? Because it's getting late, right? That's in verse 35. And they were hungry and exhausted. And they've been going flat out for a couple of days, 150% for the last couple of days. They're tired, they're hungry. And you know, they knew the people were tired and hungry because it's getting late. And so notice what Jesus' response is. His response is to teach them, to feed them. First spiritually, Right? also physically in the miracle of the 5,000. And so what I want you to know is that the feeding of the 5,000 is not just a physical banquet. It's one of a spiritual banquet as well. Jesus is spiritually feeding the people because that's what they need. He's preaching and teaching the good news of salvation. He's calling them to repent. And notice, it's also spiritually revealing for the disciples as well. Notice that it's spiritually revealing for the disciples as well. Mark makes that a consistent point throughout his book. The disciples do not truly understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. The 
disciples are spiritually blind and we see and how they respond and how they act and how they speak. And you can read it for yourselves. They, they show their ignorance. They actually show their spiritual blindness here. And it's so interesting, right? Because the disciples, they, they know of Jesus. They serve alongside with him. They spend time with him. But yet, they do not truly know who he is. And so the point is emphasized later on. Have a look at verse 51 and 52 when Jesus walks in water. Verse 51 and 52. Then Jesus climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were, not, they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. What we see here is Mark ties together the feeding of the 5,000 the feeding of loads to Jesus and concludes that the disciples have completely missed the point. The disciples had completely missed the point, something that they should have grasped. They, under- they didn't understand their hearts were hardened and they did not understand who Jesus was truly. Simply put, they should have understood that they were with the person of God who was in the flesh. They should have known. Who else could have fed the thousands and thousands of people with only a few loaves and some fish? Who else could, could perform miracles? Who else could raise someone from death to life? As if that wasn't convincing enough. But instead, what we see here is that instead of seeing the presence of God, the disciples missed it. Instead, they saw the presence of a liberator, a liberator that would free them from the oppression of Rome, someone who would free them from Roman rule. And so the point is that they didn't understand. The disciples' hearts, they, they were hardened, they didn't understand. The disciples were spiritually blind. And so I want to suggest that that's the same with you and I. It's the same with you and I, the problem of our hearts. Our hearts are hard and stony. We do not obey God. We, cannot under- we don't want to understand. And even if God came before us right now, even if he performed miracles in front of us, we wouldn't see it. We're prone to spiritual blindness. And in our stories, it's not just the disciples, but it's the people at the feeding of the 5,000. It's King Herod. It's the people of Nazareth. It's us. We're all prone to spiritual blindness. But the good news is that Jesus cures our spiritual blindness by sending his spirit. He sends his very spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one who gives us hope to see. And by his spirit, he can work a transformation in our hearts in order for us to see. And so listen carefully. Jesus has come to know you. Jesus has come to know you. Do you see that in our passage? He knows that we can't see on our own. He knows our deepest need. He knows that our hearts need the most attention. And so he displays his care and compassion through the provision of his Holy Spirit in the softening of our hearts. But ultimately, Jesus has come to know you. And so really the right response comes in the end of the chapter in verses 53 to 56. Have a look with me. They crossed over and landed in Gennesaret. And they no- and notice this language of immediacy. 
They hurried to him. They carried the sick on mats wherever he was. They begged him and they, that they might touch just the end of his robe. And what happened? Everyone who touched his robe was healed. And so what I want you to realize is that Jesus has come to know you. Jesus has come to know you. And the right response is to believe. And this type of faith is actually really simple. It's just to believe in who Jesus truly is. You see, this is spiritual 2020 vision. To have this type of faith. And it's contrasted, it's contrasted to the people early in the passage, the disciples, the king, the people of Nazareth. And you see their spiritual blindness is shown through their response. And we have seen it throughout our chapter, but right now we see people who have faith in Jesus. We see people who have faith in Jesus, people who have spiritual 2020 vision. And it's shown in their response. And so in our chapter, we see Mark again reminds us that faith is, an, is not an inevitable result of knowing about Jesus or working with him or even being related to him. Faith is not something that is automatic. But what we see here is faith is very intentional. Faith comes about very intentionally. What we see here is Jesus is the one who comes to know us first. And the right response is that we ought to personally respond in trusting Him. That's what we see. That's the point. Jesus has taken the initiative to know you. You can truly know Him today. You don't have to know Him conceptually. You don't have to know all there is to know about Him. You don't need to see all the miracles. You don't need to work for Him or serve with Him. You don't need to do all these things to know him. Because Jesus has taken the initiative to know you today. How will you respond? So one point to ponder. One point to ponder. If someone were to look at you and to look at what you treasure, which type of response would you be? If someone were to look at what you treasure, which type of response would you be? Would you be a person who is investigating Jesus, right? or who has investigated Jesus and thinks they know him? Right, that's the first one. Are you a person who wants to investigate Jesus and thinks he knows him? The second is a Christian who has grown up in the church and is familiar with Jesus. Maybe that's your response. A Christian who has grown up in church and is familiar with Jesus. And the last response is, are you a Christian who serves a lot? Are you a Christian who serves a lot? Which type of response are you? Because these three responses are in our passage. The people of Nazareth, the king, the disciples, each of these responses reveals some sort of spiritual blindness, some form of spiritual blindness. And it, it should cause us to really stop right now and to ask, do we truly know Him? 
have a look at the first. The first is pretty straightforward, right? The person who has investigated Jesus or who is investigating Jesus and thinks they know him. You see, you don't need to investigate and to know everything about Jesus to trust in him. That's what we see today. And so the question is, why are you keeping Jesus at a distance? Why are you keeping Jesus at a distance? Jesus has come to know you right now. He's come to know you. Salvation is found in Him alone, so accept it. Believe. Have faith. Decide to trust in Him right now. Secondly, a Christian who has grown up in church and is familiar with Jesus, maybe today it's a, t- it's a time to pause and reflect and ponder why you are a Christian. Remember at the start, familiarity breeds contempt, and maybe, just maybe, you're in a season of indifference. Maybe, just maybe, you're in the routine of going to church on Sundays, you're going to community groups, you're doing devotions for the sake of doing it. Maybe it's time to ask, do you truly know him? And lastly, connected to the second point, a Christian who serves a lot at church. And as I look around, I see many who serve here at Grace Point. I don't know about you, but this, I feel like this is the category I'm in. And the danger is that we fall into the trap of thinking that doing ministry or even serving ministry means knowing Jesus. And that's not to say serving is not important, but we can easily confuse our motivations And the danger is that we equate serving in ministry as knowing Him intimately. What I want to encourage is for everyone here to do is to take some time out today, even after the sermon, to reflect, to ask, to pause and ponder and ask yourself, do you really know Jesus? Do you truly know Jesus And where I want you to land is to actually to see the insufficiency of all these responses. Because what we see here today, those who have an intimate relationship with Jesus have a faith, a heart, a love that is so radically different. And so if someone were to look into your life and to see what you treasure, what response is it going to be? Because whatever it is, the good news is that Jesus has come to know you today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you take the initiative to come to know us. And Father, I want to pray for all of us who are here right now. For those who are struggling to know you, to see you. For those, even for those who have known you for a long time. Father, I pray that you will continue to do the work of softening hearts and to continue the work of sanctification and to continue to reveal the love and care that's found only in Jesus. Thank you that you know us and see us for all that we are. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.